The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. President Eisenhower warned us against the military-industrial complex. Well, I prefer the military-industrial-congressional complex. I've literally been in a meeting on Capitol Hill uh, talking about the F-35 where I had a staffer say that, look, we can't oppose this because it's worth a thousand jobs for us. On today's War College, a former Marine captain tackles overspending in the U.S. military and calls for an informed approach to deep cuts. You're listening to Reuters War College, a discussion of the world in conflict, focusing on the stories behind the front lines. Hello, welcome to War College. I'm your host, Matthew Galt. With me today is former Marine Corps Captain Dan Grazier. Grazier did tours of duty in both Iraq and Afghanistan before leaving the military and joining the Project on Government Oversight, an independent watchdog group. Pogo fights to keep Washington open, honest, and accountable. Dan, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, Matthew, it's good to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So today we're going to talk about waste, fraud, and abuse in the American military budget. I wanted to talk about it today because Amnesty International recently reported that the U.S. Army lost track of $1 billion in equipment. Dan, is Pogo watching this, and what exactly happened? Well, we we are definitely paying attention to this. I haven't delved into this one in in great great detail at this point, but Pogo has definitely watched a lot of these issues over the over the years. And in this case specifically, though, it does look like it was just sloppy accounting on the part of the the army in this case, where individual units were using different accounting systems, uh, there was no centralized system, and so things just got lost uh, overseas. And that's interesting that you say that there's no centralized accounting system, because as I've reported on this and have dug into this, that's that's a recurring theme that comes up in a lot of these cases, right? Is that one of the big problems with keeping budgets down and keeping everyone accountable is that a lot of departments have a lot of hard time talking to each other. There's a lot of like bureaucratic and infrastructural problems, correct? Correct. Yeah, they well, and these units are these units are spread out. Sometimes their their connectivity isn't what they're used to back here in the United States when they're overseas. And there's frankly just a lot of moving parts involved. You have you have a lot of these units. They're conducting operations all over the place. Uh, they're they're sending. Uh, equipment out to partner nation units who just simply don't have the same cultural standards that we have or that the that the US military has with regards to accountability so they just don't have the the same motive that we do to pay attention and keep track of these things that's another interesting point that you bring up that I think gets lost in a lot of these discussions is that one of the one of the reasons I think that the American military is so dominant is that its logistical infrastructure is so robust, and force projection requires that kind of logistical infrastructure. Do you think that, you know, losing a billion dollars in equipment now and then is just the price that America pays for being the best? Uh, well, it certainly it certainly can be. 
uh, you know, we're, we're talking about these massive, massive organizations that have a whole lot of a whole lot of parts and a whole lot of a whole lot of moving pieces. So it is virtually impossible when you have such a big organization and you have such a big bureaucracy uh, to maintain perfect efficiency. And that's not to mean that 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 should actually be a goal. I mean, warfare is inherently a wasteful enterprise, and perfect efficiency is it actually creates very delicate systems. So whereas the military needs a robust system, perfect efficiency. Efficiency is not actually a goal that I think the military should have. That being said, the military does need to husband its resources really well and be good stewards to the taxpayer dollars to make sure that uh, that taxpayer dollars aren't being just frittered away in a capricious and very wasteful nature. You just said something I think is really interesting that I had not heard before, that uh, war is an inherently wasteful enterprise. Can you explain that a little bit more for us? Oh, sure. Uh, you know, if you think about the the invasion in 2003, the, the really high-scale operations, you're talking about a, a big system, a big machine, really, that's moving forward and it is causing death and destruction. So that right there, that is an inherently wasteful enterprise, not on a moral aspect, just the it's just the nature of warfare. And so you're going to expend a lot of ordnance, you're going to use a lot of fuel, you're going to go through a lot of a lot of expendable items when they need to be replenished. It needs to be replenished very quickly. Now that means that you end up forward staging a lot of uh, a lot of logistics, and it's important to be able to have those resources staged where they're needed, when they're needed. Not necessarily in the most efficient way, but that creates a robust system that's a lot harder for the enemy to uh, collapse around you. Well, with that in mind, and with what's you know with what's at stake whenever we go to war. Are we thinking about this, and is the civilian population maybe thinking about this the wrong way, and the Pentagon is thinking about it, um, you know, from their perspective, the correct way? Like, we just, you just have to give us the money and trust us. You know, what's, what's the role of civilian oversight then? Uh, well, civilian oversight is very important, and it's never a good idea to give anybody a blank check. And uh, I would be very mistrustful of anybody who says, just give me the money, trust us, we know, we know what we're doing with it. I think it's important for civilians to, particularly in an oversight uh, role, to, to understand military operations and to understand how the military works so that they can provide the right oversight. Because what might seem in, in other circumstances outside of the military to be very wasteful or doesn't make a whole lot of sense might make perfect sense in a military context. So it's important. Civilian oversight is very important, but it's, it's important that the people who are providing their oversight really understand what it is that's going on. All right, so what do you think stories like this say about the Pentagon's culture then and the way that they spend money currently? Well, there are definitely a lot of ways that the that the Pentagon can be better stewards of the taxpayer dollars. I like to reference back to the Defense Business Board's report that came to light late last year uh, that found that the Pentagon had, you know, can potentially save 125 billion dollars uh, just on on overhead in the Pentagon. So there's there's plenty of places where cuts can be made and I think it's 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 important for for the public to understand that so that when you do get some people who come up to Capitol Hill uh, with their hands out saying that they need more money, it's important for uh, for people to be able to say, well, wait a second, there are plenty of places to cut. Why don't we start? Why don't we start with that? 
uh, and then maybe we can talk about increasing your budget. I remember that story. That was a really big story for like one, barely one news cycle. I think the Washington Post broke it, if I recall correctly. Um, it did get lost kind of in, in other events because there was a whole lot else going on in the world in, in December of 2016. It, uh, you know, as happens. But I, I still think that it, it speaks to something in the American like news consumption cycle. These stories come up uh, not infrequently. You know, we like currently going on right now is the Leonard Glenn Francis scandal, which is, you know, uh, sending a lot of admirals and uh, other flag officers in the Navy's Pacific fleet to prison. Uh, and it's it has to do with budgets and waste, fraud and abuse and corruption, all the things that we're, we're talking about today. But it's not stuff that gets a lot of play in the media. Why don't you think that the media in this instead of the civilian population seems to care about this or pay attention? Well, I think they would care about it if they if if it was reported more, and particularly in in the 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 Fat Leonard scandal that you're talking about is a great example, and it's a very very compelling story, and it's gotten play in certain media outlets, but I think in the you know for the for the wider population, I don't think many people know about it, um, but it's a it's a great example um, of of fraud, waste, and abuse in in the military, and and I think you're right that the the big problem with the with the fat leonard scandal is a cultural problem in the navy and in the seventh fleet in particular because uh, this was something that was going on for years and years and years and there were a lot of people that knew about it but it took years for anybody to actually take any serious action to stop it can you give us uh like a brief the cliff notes version of kind of what's going on with that absolutely so the 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 story is basically this the seventh fleet uh the navy's seventh fleet is the pacific fleet operates all over uh you know all over the pacific rim and uh when these ships go into port they have to undergo a lot of services and it's just basic basic ship services uh you know pumping uh, sewage off the ships and and pumping clean fresh water into the ships and removing trash and providing security at the ports, that kind of stuff. Uh, it's called husbanding services. And uh, Fat Leonard, Leonard Glenn Davis, ran a, ran, ran a company called Glenn Marine uh, or Glenn Davis Marine Asia. He provided these kind of services in ports all over the all over the Pacific, and it's a very lucrative business. But what he was doing was he was recruiting uh, friendly officers uh, and Navy personnel uh, in these in these ships to help steer the ships towards his ports. Uh, so he operated in some ports, but not all of them, and. And in certain ports, he was able to charge more. And so what he was doing, he was bribing officers to uh, to give him ship schedules and to actually make the decision to send the ship to one port over another one uh, where uh, uh, GDMA could get the business. Uh, and in return, he was doling out gifts, watches, expensive dinners, the services of prostitutes, uh, you know, really expensive uh, hotel stays, all those kind of things. And and he was roping up some very high ranking, some very high ranking officers. It was just recently where a retired admiral was sent to prison uh, for accepting bribes from from Fat Leonard. And he had he had an NCIS investigator in his pocket as well that was letting him know how the investigation was proceeding against him. Um, and you read there a lot of the emails and things that they had sent back and forth were are, are public. You can you can go and look at them. And it's just 
incredible that these guys operated very brazenly and kind of didn't think they would ever get caught. Well, they didn't, and and that's where I say that this is uh, that this is a real uh, a big cultural issue, because a lot of times when instances of fraud, waste, and abuse happen, they tend to be individual crimes and done kind of in the shadows. Well, these guys were going in groups with with Fat Leonard, and there are all kinds of pictures of this individual with his you know arm around the shoulders of very high ranking admirals so this was this was done very much out in the open and it's very disappointing to to know that that so many people were doing this and they were doing it in in the open where other people could see what was going on you're listening to war college i am your host matthew galt we are talking with dan grazier of the project on government oversight we're going to take a quick break and we will be right back Welcome back to War College. I'm your host, Matthew Galt. We are on with Dan Grazier from the Project on Government Oversight, and we are talking about the Pentagon's budget and the opportunities to curb waste, fraud, and abuse and save the taxpayers millions, perhaps not billions of dollars. So, Dan, right before we broke, we were talking about that Leonard Glenn Francis scandal, um, and I was wondering, I, I had a personal question for you. You were a former Marine Corps captain. And then you joined, did you immediately go into Pogo after you uh, retired from the military? Or was there a brief period there? Like, what drove you to pursue this as a career after the military? Oh, it was it was immediately afterwards. I was actually on terminal leave from the Marine Corps when I started working at Pogo. And uh, so this was this, this move was made while it was still while it was still in uniform, contemplating what I was going to do when when I took my uniform off uh, for the last time. The, I, I was attracted to this kind of work mostly because I uh, I learned about the work of the famous Air Force Colonel John Boyd. I learned about him in the service because the the Marine Corps' warfighting doctrine of maneuver warfare is based directly on on John Boyd and his ideas. And so I, I to better understand Marine Corps doctrine, I learned about John Boyd, and I became fascinated by the the work that he did. Pogo was started in in the early 80s as the project on mili- for military procurement, uh, and it has since transmogrified into Pogo. Uh, but it was it was started by people surrounding John Boyd. So when I really understood. John Boyd style military reform and this happened while I was in the service I recognized that the the military does a good job of talking about the right doing the right things but in reality when I would look around and I would see the way things were were operating I realized that hey wait a second this doesn't match up with with what we with what we say we're doing and and it wasn't that I saw I had personal experiences with any crazy fraud, waste, or abuse or anything like that. I just saw that our warfighting doctrine said that we needed to do certain things, but the the way that the Marine Corps actually operated, we, we weren't doing those kind of things. We weren't educating our officers the right way. It's a, it's a good example. We weren't buying the right equipment. And so when I made the decision to, to get out of the Marine Corps, uh, this opportunity with Pogo came up to be able to to work towards those kind of meaningful military reforms to make sure that we do have the most effective military force possible. You make it sound as if these kinds of budget issues have a direct effect on military readiness and the way we fight wars. Can you delve into that a little bit? Is there an opportunity to improve our military in the way we fight by having better oversight and controlling the budgets more? 
Oh, absolutely. And and I, I wrote a piece not too long ago about this, uh, about how you know just throwing more money at the Pentagon will, will mostly mean that we're going to get we're just going to get more of the same. We're going to get more wasteful spending. Uh, and I can give you a couple of good examples, but one of the best ones uh, is you, you look at the F thirty five, and it's the the most expensive weapons program in history. If uh, if it continues on its current trajectory, it will be a one point five trillion dollar program when it's all said and done uh, between the the research and development and the procurement and then all the support afterwards for decades. But it's a system that doesn't work. And it doesn't work not because of, uh, well, I mean, there's there's all kinds of technical issues now, but the the program was doomed to fail from the very beginning because it was born from the wrong idea. Uh, And that being the idea that it's possible to build an aircraft that can be all things to all people. The decision was made in, in the 1990s that the services were going to create this one common platform that was going to work for all the different services and it was going to fill all the different missions that it needed. And history has shown again and again that that does not work, that uh, if you want to build a good fighter aircraft, you build a good fighter aircraft. If you want to build a close air support platform, you build a good close air support platform. But when you try to incorporate all of those design features into one platform, it ends up becoming the proverbial jack of all trades and master of none. And one of the best things that that could happen with this is to cancel the program and force the services to start over. Uh, Because history, again, has shown again and again that when you do that, the services actually do a better job the next time. There's a great example of that right now where the the Marine Corps was spent years and billions of dollars trying to build the, the next generation expeditionary fighting vehicle. And they tried to build what was essentially a, uh, a cross between a tank and a, and a speedboat. And they were having all kinds of trouble making that work. And it was over budget and it was behind schedule. And then it was finally canceled. And now the, the Marine Corps is coming up with the, the next design, uh, the amphibious, uh, what is it, the, the amphibious combat vehicle, ACV. And it's coming in, you know, as far as, as as far as the reports go, it hasn't been fielded yet. Um, but it's a whole lot less expensive than uh, than the the EFV, uh, and they're doing it in 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 better time. A good Navy example is the Seawolf. Uh, attack submarine. That was another one that was very expensive, and it was and, and it was behind schedule. The program was canceled, and then the Navy uh, went back to the drawing board, and they came up with the Virginia class submarine, which became a whole lot less expensive and much more effective. So there's a there's a couple of good examples of uh, how how cutting programs and hitting them in the pocketbook can make the the services much more effective. Do you think the American military is afraid to admit failure when that much money's on the line? Is that part of the problem? Oh, absolutely. Well, and these are there's there's actually two cultural issues with that. One, you're dealing with a lot of, you know, really and this is a little cliche, but a lot of type A personalities and where you know, culturally it's not acceptable for these guys to fail. So, to admit failure and admit mistakes like that, that just kind of goes against their nature and uh, in, in their culture. So that's a big problem. But the other problem is that it's this perpetual mindset of the budget process in the military, the whole use it or lose it mindset, where if I don't spend all this money, then it's going to be taken out of my budget for next year and it's going to go to somebody else. And you have the services that are fighting each other for budget supremacy. So that's a big problem. So no one wants to admit these mistakes for fear of having their budget cut the next time around. You know, no one ever really gets promoted in the military for having their budget cut. 
Right. And do you think the politicians also play a part in all of this? Because it's kind of one of the American sacred political cows, right? No one is ever going to win office by saying that we need to cut back on the military. Oh, absolutely. That's a that's a massive problem. And this is why we we talk about, uh, you know, President Eisenhower warned us against the military industrial complex. Well, I prefer the military industrial congressional complex because it's a triad and all three of those elements have to, you know, work together in order to to make that process work the way it does and yeah the you have elected officials on on capitol hill who are always looking for their next election and you're right very few politicians get reelected by having an opponent being able to run ads during the during the campaign saying that they lost jobs in their in their district and i i can give you uh i'm not going to tell you who said it to me but uh i've literally been in a meeting on capitol hill uh talking about the f-35 where i had a staffer say that look we can't oppose this because it's worth a thousand jobs for us that's another interesting piece of this puzzle, specifically for the F-35, that's really interesting. And one of the reasons it's been around for so long is that something like 47 different states have a piece of it, right? Yeah, it's uh, we call that political engineering. And uh, we call it political engineering in our line of work. The military actually calls it strategic engineering uh, or strategic contracting, I'm sorry. And... Uh, it's one of these phenomena. No one quite knows how it uh, how it originated. Uh, I tend to think that it was kind of by accident, where uh, a defense contractor realized that, hey, wait a second, I'm I'm building this thing in two different in two different congressional districts, and so that means there's two congressmen who are going to be passionate supporters of this. Well, hey, wait a second. If I split this up in even more, then that means I have more guaranteed votes uh, on this and more guaranteed defenders on Capitol Hill. And so that process has been refined over the last 50 years to the point now where with the F-35, it's it's essentially politically bulletproof because you have upwards of 80 senators and 350 different congressmen who have a direct political stake in the continuation of the F-35 program. All right. So how do we make the civilian population care about all this stuff? How do we get them involved and get them to understand what's going on here? Well, I, I think people need to be make sure that they educate themselves very well. So when and, and a, a really good example of this is when somebody talks about jobs that are created for a weapons program in a district, the Lockheed Martins and the Northrop Grumman's of the world will tell you that, hey, in this congressional district, we created 500 jobs. Well, that's not necessarily what they're calling a job is not necessarily a full time dedicated position to building that particular widget for that weapon system. It could be that one guy spent an hour, you know, throughout the year doing his little part to build a model, uh, like a, a wind test model for for this system. So people shouldn't be, you know, fooled by a lot of those a lot of those campaign ads. Uh, you definitely demand accountability for these kind of things, and to, and to recognize that there are better ways to create jobs in 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 places than than a lot of these than a lot of these systems. And besides, like if we're 
uh, like the F thirty five. If if the F thirty five was only supposed to be a a make work scheme, then hey, congratulations, it's been hugely successful. But it's supposed to do rather more than just be a make work scheme. So I think people should demand better accountability uh, for this uh, for this kind of stuff. We're supposed to be to be building quality tools that our men and women will use in in the most difficult situations imaginable. And we really owe it to them to make sure that we are buying the right piece of gear. Right. And what happens if, God forbid, we need the F-35 and it's not up to the task? Uh, we're going to be in, a, in an awful lot of trouble. And, and right now, the F-35 is definitely not... Uh, is definitely not living up to the hype. Uh, I, I published a published a report earlier this year uh, analyzing the the latest report from the Pentagon's top weapons testing agency, the Director of Operational Test and Evaluation, and uh, it was a quite lengthy report because there are a lot of problems left with this system. It's it, it it has a long way to go before its design is even finished. But we keep sinking more money and buying more and more of these things. Uh, and, and really, all we're getting for our money right now is we're getting unproven prototypes, and all of which are going to have to go back and, and to be retrofitted with fixes to make them truly effective, if that's even possible, with the, with the current design. And we're going to end up paying for that, too. So um, we've already sunk a lot of money in. And uh, with the project uh, still going the way it is, we're going to continue to sink a whole lot more money into something that is still not proven itself effective. Dan Grazier of the Project on Government Oversight, thank you so much for joining us on War College. Matthew, it was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this week's show. War College was created by Jason Fields and Craig Hedick. Matthew Galt hosts the show and wrangles the guests. It's produced by me, Bethel Hobte. A friendly reminder to rate and review our show on iTunes if you haven't already. It very much helps other people find the show. And check out our archives if you haven't in a while. We've covered everything from what fake news looks like in Russia... And we have one on the background behind the Saudi-Iran conflict, which has come into the news recently. You can tweet us suggestions for future shows. We're at war underscore college. Thanks for listening. <laughs>